morning again, and our sermon today is entitled, All for God's Glory, Serving Others, Not Self. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 23 to chapter 11, verse 1. Let's pray and, and come to God's word and uh, consider it together. Pray, we pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will be with us now as we turn to your word. Help us to understand the gospel and what it means for our lives. We pray that you would help us to be truly Christ-like as we seek um, not our own good, but the good of others, that they may be saved. And we pray that you would help us to be seeking your glory alone, to be faithful and devoted to you in every part of our life. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how should Christians decide whether to do something or not? Uh, what factors should a Christian keep in mind as they face the various decisions in life? We're all faced with a myriad of decisions every day, some big ones and some small ones. The big decisions include things like, who should I marry, where should I work, where should I live, and so on. But there's also a million small decisions that we make every day as well. Should I phone this person or watch TV? Should I sit in this seat in the church or that one in the church? Should I participate in this religious ritual with my relatives or should I refrain from it? Is it okay to, to go and drink alcohol with my colleagues after work or should I, should I not? See, every day we're faced with all of these decisions and many more. And the accumulation of all those decisions, well, that will lead to what kind of person we are, our character, and our whole way of life. And depending on how we make those decisions, our, our character, our way of life will either be Christ-like and be a, a shining witness to Christ that glorifies God, or it will be rather like the world. It will reinforce the world in its Christ-less ways and put a stumbling block to the gospel. So how can we make decisions of what we should do or shouldn't that are truly Christian? Well, we've seen over these past few uh, weeks that Paul has been addressing an issue that the Corinthians have written to him about in a letter, and that's the issue of food sacrifice to idols. Some in the congregation thought that it was okay to eat this food because, after all, idols have no real existence. There's only one true God, so there's nothing inherently wrong with eating it. But others in the congregation who had a weak conscience because of their former association with idols felt that eating such food was, was wrong because they were participating in idol worship. And, and so the church was divided. They wrote to Paul for advice. And, and the big point that Paul has been making in response in chapters 8 to 10 uh, is that the gospel teaches us to serve others and not just think about ourselves. So although there's nothing inherently wrong with eating such food, it's, it's unloving to stumble our weak brother or sister. And in chapter 9, Paul gave his own personal example of this, how he sacrificed his own freedom, such as receiving an income for his gospel preaching, so that others might be saved. Paul was willing to be all things to all people, that he might save some. And in chapter 10 last time, we saw that Paul turned to the, the dangers to self, the, the temptation to idolatry and to coming under God's judgment. And he warned them if they go so far as to participate in idol worship by, by eating this sacrificial meat, then they would be expressing real fellowship with the demons that lay behind this idol worship. 
and face God's anger and judgment. They needed to make sure that they made that decisive decision to be devoted to God alone and to flee all forms of idolatry. Well, as we come to our passage today, Paul pulls all those strands together and he summarizes it all under these two headings of loving God, loving our neighbor, and he gives us some case studies of what that looks like with regard to this issue. So let's uh, dive in. And uh, first, Paul gives us a guiding principle in verses 23 and 24. The, the guiding principle is this. Seek your neighbor's good, even at personal cost. Seek your neighbor's good, even at personal cost. Look at verse 23. It says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, you might remember Paul's actually quoted these words before, earlier in the letter, uh, in chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, and, and there, where he quoted this phrase, all things are lawful, the Corinthians had, were obviously arguing that because they were no longer under the Old Testament law, which had been fulfilled by Christ fully, they were now free to live however they wanted, including living in sexual immorality. And Paul had responded, Look, while, while Christians are, are, are free, we're saved by grace and not by works, we're, we're not under the law, it doesn't mean that we can just use our freedom to live however we want. Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. Not all things are helpful. Not helpful for us. Not helpful for others. And the first time he quoted it, the emphasis was more on, on our own being, well-being, how it's unhelpful for us. He, he, he talked about how even though all things are lawful, we shouldn't be enslaved by anything, and pursuing sexual immorality would, would ultimately enslave us to our own sinful desires. It would be unhelpful to us. But now as he quotes this phrase again, his focus shifts. The first part is still the same. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. But the second part is now different. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You see, now he's concerned not with just what is helpful for me, but what is helpful for others. He says, not all things build up others. Now that phrase, building up, that's going to appear quite a number of times in these following chapters. And we're reminded, I guess, here that the goal of gathering with other Christians is that we will build them up in the Lord Jesus. That is, our goal in, in relating to other Christians is that we want to see them know and love Jesus more and more. We want to see them being transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And, and so we want to make sure everything that we do is building them up to that goal. But not all things build up. Some things tear people down. Now, another way of putting this is that the, the Christian is to be other person-centered. And Paul has summarizes in verse 24. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, that's a principle we can apply in almost every context, isn't it? In almost every situation, it's, it's helpful to ask the question, how can I do what is best for others instead of what is best for me? How can I do what is best for others instead of what is best 
for me. In other words, how can I be loving, other person-centered? See, whenever to, to think to myself, oh, how can I use my freedom for me? What can I get away with in this situation? Uh, how can I use this, best, this situation to my advantage? No, that's not how I should think. How can I be helpful to you? How can I build you up? How can I serve you in this situation? Other person-centered love. Now, let me ask you this morning, what will it look like for you to be unselfish, other person-centered in the church? Are there preferences that you can put aside because you, you know it will be better for others? Maybe you could put aside music choices or the style of liturgy that you prefer. Could you sit in a less desirable seat so that others could have a better one? How could you put aside your preferences for the good of others? Well, what might it look like to be unselfish in the home? Where could you put the needs of your spouse, your children, ahead of your own needs, even though it's personally costly? What would this look like for how you're looking after your elderly parents? Is there an area you're being selfish, where you're, you're insisting on what you want, even though it's, it's not really good for the family? Now, what will it look like for you to be unselfish in the car? You know, allowing other drivers to merge or to, to turn in, instead of speeding up so that they can't, so you can get to your destination quicker? Could you refuse to jump the queue at the traffic lights so that others can take their turn first? What will it look like for you to be unselfish with your money? What you purchase? Who you purchase it for? Do you see that the Christian is one who sacrificially serves? That they do what is good for others and not just what is good for them. They're like the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't seek his own good, but he laid it down for us, his life for us, on the cross. So the guiding principle is this. Seek your neighbor's good, even at personal cost. Be unselfish. Do what is good for others, not just what is good for you. Well, Paul then uh, applies this guiding principle in the next three case studies that follow in verses 25 to 30. The first case study is in verse 25, and it's about buying food at the meat market, buying food at the meat market. Maybe we can contextualize and talk about the pasa. Uh, look what he says in verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of thereof. Now, we've seen throughout these chapters, Paul's very balanced in his argument. Here again, Paul affirms, as he has earlier, uh, with those of the strong conscience that, well, food is just food. Yes, uh, uh, food that is sold in the Passa, the marketplace, it probably in those days was sacrificed to an idol. But if you didn't discuss its origin with the person selling it, well, there was no problem with buying it. and There was no problem with eating it, because after all, the whole world belongs to God, including whatever foods at the market. And the fact that the food may or may not have been previously sacrificed to an idol doesn't make it any less God's. And so he counsels in this case, don't ask any questions. When you go to the pasta, just buy it, go home and eat it. Because we'll see in a moment, if you start asking 
questions or where did this food come from? Was this sacrificed to an idol before? And then you happen to discover that it actually was sacrificed to an idol. Well, then you won't be able to eat it anymore because now it will seem as though you're promoting or condoning idolatry. So, so, so don't ask any questions, just eat it. If you're over at the Passover, if you're going to the restaurant, you want your Hokkien mee, your Nazi Kanda, your Asam Laksa, whatever it is, you see that there's a small altar in the shop, or there's an idol sitting there in the corner, or there's a, there's a little shrine outside, don't worry about it. You don't have to go out of that restaurant or that market and go and find another one that doesn't have any idols in it. You know, don't ask whether they offered the food to the idols before they brought it out and, and set it before you on the table. The food's just food. There's only one true God. Just eat it and enjoy it. So that's case study number one. Uh, the second case study is quite similar in verse 27. Uh, this time you've been invited to dinner uh, with an unbeliever, maybe at their home, maybe maybe out somewhere else. Right? Uh, now, in this case, you, you, you know that they've probably got an idol in their house or wherever you're going for the food. And, and so the question becomes, well, if you know that, should you go over for dinner? Or now should you refuse? Let's look at verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. See, it's quite similar to the first case study, isn't it? Again, don't ask about the origin of the food. You know it's probably been sacrificed to an idol, but... Uh, don't ask about it. Don't raise the topic. You don't really know. And since the food's just food, there's only one true God, then no worries. Head over to dinner. Eat it. Enjoy the fellowship. Enjoy the meal with your friend. Because if the origin of the food's not been discussed, you're not stumbling then by eating it. And you're certainly not committing idolatry by doing so either. Well, that brings us to the third case study, where this time the origin of the food is made known to you and the response is therefore very different. Look at verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now we're not told here why the person is volunteering this information. Presumably you haven't asked them about it. Perhaps they're stressing how great this food is, that, you know, it's been offered to this, this idol. Or, or perhaps they think that because they know you're a Christian that it may be a problem for you to eat this food that they've sacrificed to the idol. We, we don't really know. But whatever their motivation in telling you, in informing you, if the origin of the food is made known to you, well, then immediately the situation changes. In order to not stumble your unbelieving neighbour, you can't eat it anymore because that wouldn't be helpful. That wouldn't be loving. That wouldn't be other person centered. It wouldn't be drawing them to Christ. Rather, the opposite would be affirming them in their idolatry. And so Paul clarifies a bit further in verse 29. I, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Again, he's just reminding us, it's not, it's not because it's inherently wrong for you to eat the food. That's not the reason why you're, you're refusing. 
Because if they hadn't told you that it was offered to an idol, you would have happily eaten it and you would have given thanks to God for the food that he'd provided for you. But because they have mentioned the origin, it's no longer loving. You, you don't want to stumble them. And so you can't eat. Because if you were to go ahead and eat anyway, you're going to firstly suggest that idol worship is fine. And secondly, you're going to offer yourself up for negative judgment for being a hypocrite. They might denounce you for eating because you, you claim to worship Jesus, but you're also eating this idol food. So Rosner uh, summarises like this, commenting on this verse. He says, If the other person's sense of moral judgment convinces them that the Christian is acting in an a hypocritical or unethical manner and leads them to judge the Christian and think less of the gospel and its effects, the Christian is not promoting the gospel, but hindering its success. You see, he says, don't eat, so you don't stumble them. Now, I hope you see how uh, very applicable this is to the idol worship that we see all around us here in Malaysia. I mean, all over Penang, uh, especially in people's home, you will find all these altars, and shrines, uh, either to other gods and, or very often to their ancestors. And every day they'll give them food and they'll burn joss sticks as a way of showing honour and reverence and uh, we, may as, we may consider that an act of, of, of worship to them. So what should you do uh, if you're over at someone's house, they offer you an orange and you're not quite sure whether they've, you know, that orange was offered on the family altar before it was given to you. You see, the, the case study says, well, don't ask any questions about it. Don't worry about it. They give you the orange, just go ahead and eat it. But if you know it's been offered to an idol or, 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 or to your ancestors because, well, they told you that it was, then at that point you can't eat it. You have to refuse the food, refuse the meal. Because if you were to eat it, you'd stumble them. Or, or stumble other, non, other Christians around you by suggesting it's okay to participate in idol worship. Now, of course, by extension, if that's the case for food offered to ancestors, then there's certainly a whole bunch of other rituals that we can't participate in either. Things like placing the joss stick or, 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 or bowing down before the altar or, or, or the various rituals that may be performed uh, you know, at the home or at a cemetery or at a wake or at a funeral. In all those cases, apart from actually stumbling the person, you, you, you'll be hindering your gospel witness and your very participation may be considered idolatry, being unfaithful to God and make him angry. And so very often in those cases, it's going to be very difficult, isn't it? There'll be a lot of pressure placed on us. But out of love for God and love for our neighbour, will have to refuse and pray that somehow that, that uh, very difficult situation may be one day used by God to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've, uh, we've seen the principle. Uh, it's about serving others, uh, even at a cost to yourself. We've seen these case studies when it's okay to, to eat and when it's not. And finally, we come to the motivation. And that's the glory of God and the salvation of people. The glory of God and the salvation 
of people. Look at verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, whether we eat the food with thankfulness in our hearts to God, whether we refrain from eating because we don't want to stumble our brother or, or, or even an unbeliever, in all these things, our overriding concern is always the glory of God. Not our rights, not our freedoms, not our desires, not what we want to do, but the glory of God. It's the very same conclusion Paul came to in the previous section in this letter when he was dealing with sexual immorality. He said back in chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You see, that the glory of God ought to be the ultimate and overriding motivation for everything that we do as Christians. In any and every situation, we should be asking and thinking, how can I glorify God in this situation? How can I show to God my undivided love and devotion and exalt and honour His name? Now, one of the most fundamental ways that we will bring glory to God, we will exalt his name, is, is of course how we treat other people, how we relate to other people. And especially as we, as, as we love other people and bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking people's salvation. Our love for God will be shown in our love for other people. And so that's where he continues in verse 32. He says, uh, give glory to God and then give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So driven by the desire to see people saved, not, not end up, uh, in eternal judgment for their rejection of God, driven by that desire to see people rescued, to see people forgiven, to see people brought into God's eternal kingdom where there's no more uh, suffering or pain or sickness or death, driven by that love to see people saved, we will do whatever we can, everything we can, to not put a stumbling block to the gospel before others, to not do anything that will... Stop people from finding salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, look, if food, eating food sacrificed to an idol would stumble a Jew for whom it was clearly forbidden in the Old Testament, then Paul wouldn't do it. And if eating food sacrificed to an idol would, would stumble a Greek by affirming them in their idolatry, then Paul wouldn't do it. And if eating food sacrificed to an idol would stumble a fellow Christian with a, with a weak conscience who still thought that eating uh, such food was wrong, then Paul wouldn't do it. You see, his overriding concern in any and every situation is, does this glorify God and is this loving for my neighbour? See, in everything we should desire the good of others and not just my own advantage. The benefit of others, not what is my own personal desire. And, and we should want their ultimate good, that they will be saved. Now, Paul's not a people pleaser. His ultimate goal is to, is to glorify God. But he knows sacrificially loving other people it's the best way that we can help them to hear the gospel and be saved. 
And of course, I, I guess you notice how Paul holds himself up here as an example of this kind of unselfish, other person-centered living for us to follow. That Paul says, look how I'm not seeking my own advantage, but the good of others, so they can be saved. Look at what I'm doing, and imitate me. Do what I'm doing. And it doesn't say that because he's, he's wanting to puff himself up, or because he thinks he's someone special. He says, imitate me, because I'm following Jesus. Look at verse 1. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. We should imitate Paul, because that's what Christ did. Christ didn't please himself or seek his own advantage. He left the glories of heaven to be born in a manger, to be suffered and rejected on earth, to die on a cross, naked and ashamed, as he bore the wrath of God on our sin. Jesus didn't please himself or seek his own advantage. He did what was good for us, that we would be saved, and he did what was for the glory of God. I wonder, do you know people who are living that kind of unselfish, other-person-centred, loving life? Do you know people like this, driven by the glory of God, the salvation of others? Do you know people imitating Christ as they put the needs of others before their own freedoms and rights, sacrificing them so that others will hear the gospel and be saved? Do you know people like that? I really hope that you do, that you know many people like that. And if you do, Paul says, imitate them as they imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, we should also strive to be that kind of example to others as well. Now, we might say, well, well, my example is nothing worth imitating. I, I fail so often, and I'm, I'm often very selfish and proud. Well, Paul wasn't sinless either as he imitated the Lord Jesus. But it does mean all the more that we should be striving to imitate Christ in response to the gospel. Because in the end, Christianity is not just about believing the right things about Jesus, but living in the light of them. We must not only believe that, that Christ graciously came and died for our sins, but we must imitate Christ in response by doing whatever is necessary to help others hear the gospel and be saved. See, our, our life, if you've really understood the gospel, our life should more and more and more resemble the character, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So find someone worthy of, of imitation, someone like the Apostle Paul, someone who's living the Christian life, like Paul, like Jesus. Watch how they live. Imitate them. And then be that example to others. Well, let's conclude. Now, in chapters 8 to 10, Paul has dealt at length with this issue of food sacrifice to idols. And in this closing section, he's summarized all that he's said with these two principles that should be at the heart of Christian behavior. That is, we should love God and we should love our neighbor. And loving God means that we will give him our full devotion, we'll resist all forms of idolatry, we'll never compromise, we will seek to glorify God in everything that we do. And loving our neighbor means we'll seek their advantage, we'll put their needs above our own, 
will seek their advantage, not my desires. And especially we will seek to do whatever we can that they may hear the gospel and be saved. And in all this, as we seek to love God and love others, we look to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who gave us a supreme example of what it looks like to love God and love others as he laid down his life for us on the cross. So at the start, we, we asked, how should a Christian decide whether they should do something or not? What factors should they keep in mind as they face the various decisions in life? And in this passage, Paul has given us the framework to think about any behavior, any decision. As we think about those things, we should always ask these two questions. Does it glorify God? Is it loving for my neighbor? Or to put it another way, does this express an attitude of love and devotion to Christ alone? And am I being unselfish and sacrificial, seeking the good of others, that they may be saved? If the answer is yes on both accounts, then I should go ahead and do it. If it's not, I should refrain. Because if I truly love God, I'll be seeking to be faithful to him in all situations, doing what he wants and not what I want. And my love for him will be reflected in my love for others as I seek their advantage, their benefit, their salvation, their maturity, and not what is simply good for me. You see, we do all for the glory of God, serving others not serving self. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, that in love for you and love for us, he left heaven to be born as a man, to be rejected and killed, to die upon a cross, so that we might be saved. Lord, we Thank you that he has shown us what it looks like to be other person-centered, to be sacrificial. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us in response to that salvation, to be imitating his example, to be faithful to you in every situation, especially when we face the temptation to, to compromise and participate in, in idolatrous practices. We pray that you'd be helping us to, to truly love other people, seeking their good, their advantage above our own so that they may be saved. So Lord, help us not only to believe in the cross, but to live in the light of it so that whatever we, we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.